I want to just give you a brief background or summary of what the book attempts to do. The book was written over a long period and it grew by accretion. It started out actually at the end of the first week of Operation Cast Lead. I was already disturbed by some of the official interpretations, the media interpretations of what was happening. I wrote something that was about three pages, maybe. And then as Operation Cast Lead unfolded, I started to write more. And then there were very unusually large uh, number of uh, reactions and interventions after Operation Cast Lead. In fact, uh, one of the members of the Goldstone Commission, uh, Desmond Travers, he estimated that there were as many as 300 human rights reports on Operation Cast Lead. And it was clear that it was a turning point in public perceptions. For those of us who go back a long ways, and that's not really all that many people in this room, there had been a number of critical turning points. When I refer here to turning points, I'm referring to public perceptions of the conflict in the West, development, unfolding of public opinion. The first major turning point was uh, 1982, uh, June to September 82, Israel's invasion of Lebanon where as it happens, on a personal note, I first became involved in the Israel-Palestine conflict, which wasn't at all on my political radar up until that point. And what happened during Operation, excuse me, what happened during, well, it was Operation Peace of the Galilee, June through September 1982. Uh, it was the first, first break in public opinion on Israel among certain sectors. In retrospect, pretty narrow sectors, but at the time it seemed quite important. It was what you would call the liberal left and the old left. Hard to believe now, but at that time what was called the old left, the Stalinist left, the pro-Soviet left, which was still an, a, something of an active force in the United States at that time, 82. Uh, they were very pro-Israel. Israel, as most of you know, Israel, uh, the Soviet Union was the first country to legally recognize Israel on its birth in 1948. The U.S. gave the first de facto recognition. And uh, large segments of Israeli society were, or large segments of the politically influential sectors of Israeli society were very pro-Soviet. The Mapam, uh, the Israeli, uh, the Israeli labor, left, labor left. And so they remained up until Lebanon in 82, they remained very pro, not very pro-Israel, but certainly very sympathetic to Israel. And that sector, the liberal left, it broke off. I remember it very vividly. I was active on the left in a, a weird cult in the left, the Maoist movement. And when uh, Operation, when Operation Peace of the Galilee uh, happened, uh, Edward Said, among others. Uh, I was not friends with him at all, but we all knew him as a figure, obviously. He took out a very large ad in the New York Times. It was full page. It was the weekend. It was the news and review. And at that time, the Times was very influential. It was the newspaper of records. Obviously, it's, it doesn't carry that nearly the way it does now. And it said, 160,000 uh, refugees, 20,000 people killed 
in very big bold letters. Uh, it was referring, and then there were the signatories. And of course, it was interesting to see who was signing. So people who were very pro-Israel up until then, take for example a figure everyone in this room will know, I think, no, actually the young people won't know, Pete Seeger, who was deeply identified on the left, <coughs> the anti-war left, but also his first hit song on the, what we call the top 40 chart, was Tsena, Tsena, Tsena. It was an Israeli song. And so he was both heavily involved in the left, but also uh, pro-Israel. Uh, and for obvious reasons, because there was a time where Jews were the persecuted people, and if you were on the left, you're going to identify with those who are persecuted. And most of these the old left were veterans of the anti-fascist struggles of the 1930s. So there was a deep feeling for Jews. And then another signatory was Paul Robeson Jr., the son of Paul Robeson. Paul Robeson was renowned, among other things, for his defense of the Jewish people. So that was one turning point. The next big turning point came in 1987 with the first Intifada. And here uh, you see the liberal end of the spectrum, not liberal left, but the liberal end of the spectrum, is now beginning to waver because Israel was, uh, the first Intifada was a public relations debacle for Israel. I remember I was teaching then at a completely crazy, uh, fanatical pro-Israel school its three most famous graduates uh, were Alan Dershowitz, uh, Baruch Goldstein, the fellow who carried out the massacre in Hebron, and Meyer Kahane, the head of the Jewish Defense League. So you can imagine I fit in really well on that faculty. <laughs> and uh, I remember one class when we were teaching the Israel-Palestine conflict, a student who was what we call in the U.S. a white ethnic, he was... Irish or of Italian descent, and he just, at one time, he just said, Stone, Uzi, that's not fair. And that was the image that was projected by the first intifada. Stone, Uzi, that's not fair. Israel is no longer victim. Israel is the victimizer. So that was the second major turning point where the liberals began to vacillate. And I would say the third main turning point, there was some wavering that occurred during the repression that ensued after the Second Intifada began. It's often forgotten, I mean, now the only thing people remember of the Second Intifada were the suicide bombings. But there was a huge unleashing of Israeli repression, which actually created dense in support for Israel at the time. But the next real turning point came with Operation Castlet. The That was another public relations debacle for Israel. And as I said, the Human rights community weighed in very heavily, and the reports were pretty devastating. And as everybody in this room knows, the ultimate report was the, uh, Golds the Richard Goldstone report. And the Goldstone report had many qualities that made it quite remarkable. First of all, obviously, the author, who was a firm member of the liberal, moderate <laughs> Jewish community. He's a respected international jurist. He's uh, self-identified Jewish. He wasn't Jewish just by fortune or birth. He was, as he would say, proudly Jewish. And he was also self-identified proudly Zionist, his label, not mine. And his, he was on the board of directors of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. His daughter had done Aliyah 
so this was a solid mainstream figure. You wouldn't even call him particularly liberal figure. He's a solid mainstream figure. And so he produces this report, which was, as compared to the others, you would say it was more exhaustive, uh, as John Dugard said to me. John Dugard also authored a very good report for the Arab League on Operation Cast Lead. But he, he granted, he deferred to the authority of the Goldstone Report, among other reasons, because it just examines so many more cases. Uh, there are so many more case studies. So there was the uh, pedigree of the lead author. There was the exhaustiveness of the report. But what was really critical about the Goldstone Report, in my opinion, was that it crossed the threshold which everybody was uh, had hitherto shied away from, or you could say dreaded having to cross. And that was the threshold, which I'll just spend a couple of minutes on. Under international law, there are three categories of war crimes. Categories are disproportionate force, indiscriminate force, and targeting of civilians. Now, under international law, those three types of crimes, war crimes, they all carry equal weight. There's no hierarchy. There's not one that's worse than the other. They're all, in theory, of equal, culpa uh, of equal culpability. However, once you leave the arcane world of international law and you enter into the court of public opinion, there is a hierarchy, and everybody understands there's a hierarchy. A disproportionate force, actually, I can tell you, having read so much about it, it means absolutely nothing, because it's absolutely impossible to calculate. How do you, how do you prove a, an attack was disproportionate? So some, um, let's <coughs> pretend that Avi Shleim, for the moment, is a Hamas militant. Israel decides to use the repulsive language of war. They decide they want to take him out, okay? So in order to take out Avi, they drop a one-ton bomb on him. And in the course of taking out Avi, they take out the rest of the room. So someone comes along and says, well, that's disproportionate force. But Israel says, no, it's not disproportionate because Avi's not your run-of-the-mill terrorist. He's a terrorist leader, and he was planning all sorts of terrorist attacks. So in fact, although it might appear to be disproportionate because 15 other people were killed when the one-time bomb was dropped in his head, in fact, it wasn't disproportionate because you have to look at what's called the value of the target. And this was a very valuable target, and therefore it wasn't disproportionate to use a one-ton bomb on him. Um, well, obviously, I just skimmed the surface. There are 10,000 caveats to disproportionate force. So, for example, let's say the commander says, well, when I dropped the bomb on him, I wasn't aware that there were so many other people in the room. So then you have to judge disproportionate force by the awareness of the commander at the time he, it is a he all the time, at the time he uh, made the decision to drop it. In other words, it's a worthless category. It has no meaning in the real world. Uh, indiscriminate force, you could say, has slightly more meaning, but most in the court of public opinion, people think, well, how can you be discriminate in war? There's a, a, a battle zone. There's the fog of war, and you have to make allowances for the inability to be discriminate. The one category that public opinion does not accept is targeting, targeting civilians. That's a red line. 
That's a litmus test. If a country is accused of targeting civilians, they've crossed the red line, and court of the, uh, the court of public opinion won't accept it. And the human rights organizations are perfectly aware of that. So, for example, a couple of days ago, there was an article on the latest uh, strife, very ugly strife, in Syria. And immediately, Amnesty International said that the Bashar regime is targeting civilians. That was the headline. Now, they know targeting civilians, whatever the laws of war might say about them, the crimes being of equal value. No, it's not of equal value. Targeting of civilians in the court of public opinion it evokes a very different reaction. The red line that Goldstone crossed was he was really, even though the other reports by Human Rights Watch and Amnesty were quite good in the factual side, the Goldstone report was the first one that really crossed a red line when it said that the object of Operation Cast Lead was to punish, humiliate, and terrorize a civilian population. So it was the first time that kind of the curtain was lifted the fog was dispelled, and somebody was blank, frankly saying, these aren't really military, these are not really wars in the sense that you're targeting combatants or military sites. You're targeting the civilian population. And in fact, then, the only really relevant category is not the laws of war, but it's crimes against humanity. Now, on the periphery, I'm not going to deny it, I'm not going to dispute it, and surely he does it. On the periphery, there, are, there is some combat going on. But it's really very peripheral to what's going on in these Israeli operations. They're targeting the civilian population. And Goldstone, the report, goes into some detail on what the motives were, trying to punish the people of, Ham of Gaza for electing Hamas, trying to get the people of Gaza to rid themselves, eject Hamas from office, this was classical state terrorism. You're targeting a civilian population to achieve a political goal. And once Goldstone had crossed that, crossed that red line, uh, the Israeli society just went berserk. Mm -hmm. uh, at every level of Israeli society and across the political spectrum, uh, they just went mad in their attacks on, on Goldstone, dredging up his past when he was a uh, judge under the apartheid regime in South Africa, then going for the moral jugular and uh, uh, trying to prevent him from attending his grandson's bar mitzvah in South Africa. Then on April 1st, uh, 2011, we all thought it was a prank. That wasn't the prank. Goldstone uh, published a recantation in the Washington Post. And uh, just on a personal level, it was, I remember quite vividly even now, uh, even though time has elapsed, I was like really crushed. I personally had invested a lot in the Goldstone report. It was a very, it was, as the Israelis said, it was a very valuable weapon. I remember there was one point where the Israelis said that every time an Israeli representative went on a college campus to speak, the critics of Israel were holding up the Goldstone report, and they didn't know what to do. It was a complete disaster for Israel. And then there is, of course, Goldstone's official explanation for why he recanted. The official re re uh, explanation was that New information became available since publication of the report. And you can you know, judge for yourself. I went through uh, all the uh, claims at probably tedious, at the point of tediousness in the book I wrote. Uh, there was no new information. It was just not true. 
It was perfectly obvious there was no new information because all the facts that he raised in the Washington Post report, he had actually addressed a few months earlier at Stanford University. And in Stanford University, when he gave a talk, he said, this is not new information, but suddenly it became new information. And then the question, obviously, is then why did he recant? And there are two possibilities. The one that's most, um, most people believe is the public pressure finally got to him and he recanted. I don't believe that. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I've never, I've ceased wondering who killed John F. Kennedy. I really don't care anymore. It's not my cup of tea, but I think here the reasonable inference based on the circumstantial evidence, which I'm not going to right now adduce, it's pointless, uh, is that he was blackmailed. In fact, uh, a very respected jurist, who out of respect for him, I won't name him, who knows Goldstone very well, personally and professionally, and whose word, I would say, is unimpeachable. He said it's, it was clear he didn't write it. It was just not his style. If you read the re- recantation, it was very murky. You didn't quite know, what is he saying here? It could have been murky because he... He wanted to recant, but he didn't want to recant. There's the gun to his head, so he knows he has to, but he doesn't really want to. So that might account for the murkiness. It's possible. But another possibility is, as this respected jurist told me, I know his style. He's very lucid. He has crystalline prose. He did not write that op-ed in the Washington Post. In any event, the, the result is more important, I think, than the speculation as to what accounted for his recantation. The result was a complete and total catastrophe. Obviously, Israel got to crow. We were right all along. The report was a fraud. It was a fake. It was all filled with lies and falsifications. Okay, you can live with the crowing. The worst part of it was, it seems, on the surface, based on the evidence that one can observe, that the uh, human rights organizations uh, took fright at what happened, even if you're a person of impeccable integrity, you always have a relative, a close friend, who's got skeletons in his or her closet. And that makes you vulnerable to blackmail. A daughter comes to you, you know, I had an affair, I know it was wrong, uh, and the Israelis found out, and if you don't uh, recant, I'm going to, uh, it's going to destroy our family, that sort of stuff. Uh, Everybody has that kind of vulnerability. The bottom line was, after Operation Protective Edge, which was quantitatively, I won't say qualitatively, but quantitatively much worse than Operation Cast Lead. Just take the the basic numbers under an Operation Cast Lead, about 6,300 homes were destroyed in Operation Protective Edge. It was 18,000. 350 children killed in Operation Cast Lead, Protective Edge, 550 children, 600,000 tons of rubble left behind in Operation Cast Lead, 2.5 million tons of rubble left behind in Operation Protective Edge. It was a quantitatively worse picture after um, Operation Protective Edge. And, I, you know, we don't want to get into the business of comparing which is worse, which is better, because that always becomes a kind of moral slippery slope where you end up trying to prove something that you really don't want to prove. But I will say, just as a factual matter, there was one statement that really struck me about from Operation Protective Edge, one statement that stood out for me. The head of the International Committee of the Red Cross is a fellow named Peter Moorer, 
And given his job description, you can imagine, as the executive director of the International Committee, he spends most of his time touring war zones. So he better probably than any other individual in the world has first-hand knowledge of and uh, has observed uh, personally war zones. And as everybody in this room knows, because you're mostly Middle East specialists, especially in the Middle East, there are so many horrific war zones, whether it's a little far afield, but Afghanistan, Yemen, Bahrain, Libya, Syria. And Moore is touring all of these war zones. And he said at one point after Operation Protective Edge, when he went to observe, he said, quote, I've never seen such massive destruction ever before. That statement really has to weigh on you. Of all the places, and we're talking about places which have been, there's nothing left. And yet tiny little Gaza, tiny little Gaza, Gaza can fit in this room. And he says it's, he's never seen such massive destruction ever before. And yet... After Operation Protective Edge, and in my opinion, the aftermath and the wake of of the Goldstone debacle, there was almost no human rights reports on Operation Protective Edge. Human Rights Watch produced five very substantial reports on Operation Cast Lead. They did one called Rain of Fire on the use of white phosphorus. They did one on Precisely Wrong on Israel's use of drones during Operation Cast Lead. Uh, after Operation Protective Edge, they wrote one very skimpy report, 15 pages, which is very small for them, a very short brief for them. And that was it. They were completely missing in action. The only human rights organization that did invest a lot in documentation was Amnesty International. But Amnesty, it did issue five reports, but they were a complete and total disaster. It was really very painful to read these reports because after Operation Protective Edge, excuse me, after Operation Cast Lead, they, wrote, they produced one substantial report. Human Rights Watch p- produced five reports, you know, ranging in page number, pages from like 30 to 120. Uh, Amnesty put, produced one large report, very effective. It was called 22 Days of Death and Destruction. It was uh, compelling and ver- very critical of what Israel had done. After Operation Protective Edge, they produced five reports, but they were complete disasters. And time doesn't allow me to illustrate, so I'll just uh, illustrate uh, in any convincing detail. But I'll just give you one example. As I mentioned during Operation Protective Edge, uh, 18,000 homes were either entirely destroyed or rendered unlivable. There were tens of thousands more which were damaged, but there were 18,000 where, for all intents and purposes, there is no home there anymore. And Amnesty produces a report. It's called Families Under the Rubble. And it examined, I think, my memory is, I could be wrong, it examined around 11 cases of these homes. And they chose homes where the structures were demolished and large numbers of civilians were killed. Usually between, say, 6 and 20 civilians were killed and Mostly, it was relatives, 12 members of one family, 13 members of another family, and so forth. And as you might imagine, they say Israel used disproportionate force. Israel used indiscriminate force. What about the targeting of the homes, because they're civilian homes, and the targeting of civilians? And Amnesty says, well, 
We think it's possible there may have been a Hamas militant in this home, and there may have been a Hamas militant in that home, and there may have been a Hamas militant in that home. And so by the end, they have, let's bear in mind, this is not Israel speaking, because Israel refused to cooperate with amnesty, and Israel even refused to let amnesty enter Gaza. So this is just holy speculation of amnesty based on one or two, in some of the reports it was one, in some of the reports it was two, based on one or two field workers in Gaza, who basically, they just, if you read it, you'll judge for yourself the report, it's just gossip. And the basis of that, they discover that even though the force was disproportionate, and even though the force was indiscriminate, still there was a legitimate military target. So it's operations that, have be, that are excessive, that have gone awry, that are even criminal, but they won't cross that red line that says they were just darkening the houses because they were terrorizing the civilian population. You can reasonably speculate sitting here that, well, maybe amnesty is right. Maybe these were military targets. But there's one problem with that argument. The problem is the one redemptive moment from the entire Operation Protective Edge were the testimonies of the Israeli soldiers who fought in Gaza. And these testimonies were assembled by an organization called Breaking the Silence. And before any of you infer that somehow these are prejudicial testimonies because they're coming from leftists or uh, uh, radicals or anti-Zionists or Palestinian sympathizers. There may be some truth to that as regards the organizers of breaking the silence, but when you read the, the testimonies, the people who gave testimony, the combatants, they were absolutely not in the least bit, not in the slightest remorseful, contrite, embarrassed, ashamed by what they did. Not at all. They were just sitting back in a room and very matter-of-factly describing what happened during Operation Protective Edge. And literally, almost every testimony, it's about 110 pages, I forgot how many witnesses there were, almost every testimony came back to the question of the houses. What happened with those houses? And you have a question, you have a, you have a problem, you have an embarrassed every chest. There were just so many testimonies, and they're all saying the same thing. So I'll give you just a couple of examples. How does Operation Protective Edge begin? A soldier says, I got the impression that every house we passed on our way in got hit by a shell, and houses farther away too. It was methodical. There was no threat. I'm quoting him. There was no threat. The middle of Operation Protective Edge, because it lasted an unusually long period of time, 51 days. The middle. Here's what a soldier describes. The D-9, the bulldozers they bring in, the D-9 bulldozers. The D-9 operators, they didn't rest for a second, nonstop, as if they were playing in a sandbox, driving back and forth, raising another house, another street. Day and night, 24-7, they went back and forth, flattening house after house. There were no Hamas militants. 
What's amnesty talking about? How does it end? A soldier describes the withdrawal from Gaza. The very day we left Gaza, all the houses we had stayed in were blown up by combat engineers. That's exactly what Goldstone said. It was punish, humiliate, and terrorize the civilian population. But amnesty understood. You can use disproportionate force. You can say indiscriminate force. But if you say it's just targeting the civilian population, you're in trouble. You're now in Goldstone zone. And I have to, you know, I, was, uh, I didn't write the book in malice. I did not. I, in the past, have heavily depended on amnesty. And I understood they had a problem. They did. We have to be honest about it. Because if you look in the past, Amnesty and Human Rights Watch, they always covered each other's backs. They put out reports simultaneously and more or less reached the same conclusions. And so each protected the other. Now Human Rights Watch was missing in action and Amnesty was out on a limb. And I think they got scared. They got scared because of what happened to Goldstone and they got scared because they were out there on their own. And they didn't quite know what to do. And they ended up producing whitewashes. Uh, Same thing happened with the Human Rights Council. Human Rights Council was the group that originally appointed Goldstone. This time around, they had appointed somebody named William Shabas to head the commission. And uh, it was expected that he was going to do a Goldstone. The Israelis got a heart, got on him. He was eventually forced to withdraw. And they got this um, New York State judge, Mary McGowan Davis, to head the commission. She's a complete non-entity. She's coming from New York State, and in New York State, judiciary, you watch yourself, you're not going to attack Israel. It's as simple as that, you don't want to hear it too bad, it's the truth. And so she wrote another com- a complete disaster. I mean, some of the stuff, I said it was like a Victorian parlor game, who can come up with the most re- ludicrous legal explanation for a situation that's described because most of the human rights supports, overwhelmingly, factually, they are unimpeachable. Factually. The field staff, they have a sense of professional integrity. They're very good factually. The problem is you have a fact set, and then you have to legally interpret the fact set. Does this constitute disproportionate force? Does this constitute just a violation of international law, not a war crime? And who does the evaluation, the assessment of the fact set? It's lawyers. And unfortunately, not meaning to attend any, offend anyone, but when the lawyers come in, the truth goes out. So they start to legally interpret things in just completely bizarre ways. It became like a Victorian parlor game. Who can come up with the most preposterous explanation for a fact set which was pretty devastating? I'll give you one example and we're going to end it there. We'll take the example of Shujaya. Shujaya is, as most of you know, I'm sure all of you know, Gaza is among the most densely populated places in the world. It's more densely populated than Tokyo. And Shujaya is uh, among the most densely populated places in densely populated Gaza. So outside Shujaya, unusually, uh, there was a firefight and 10 Israeli soldiers were killed. Of course, this is, enrages the Israelis. A, sol- you know, a soldier gets killed. Israeli soldiers are not supposed to get killed in wars. Only other people are supposed to get killed in wars. So they're just enraged by what happens. And they decide they're going to teach Shujaya a lesson because it occurred outside Shujaya. So they start, they claim that they had to, this is their official explanation, the Israelis, they had to rescue injured soldiers in Shujaya. So how they rescue them? They fired thousands of high-explosive, in, uh, indiscriminate artillery shells into Shujaya. And then 
they drop more than a hundred, more than a hundred one-ton bombs on Shijaya. And then along comes the UN Human Rights Council, they investigate, and they say, well, you know, this raises some questions about proportionality, and it raises some questions about indiscriminateness. They said, but you know, the Israelis, they carried out this operation for the purposes of what they call force protection. Force protection, in other words, trying to rescue injured soldiers. And then you just kind of like take a step back. You just dropped 100 one-ton bombs in a densely populated neighborhood in order to rescue your soldiers. It's as if they're not even reading what they're writing. It's like Mary McGowan Davis is sitting there. Okay, who can come up with a legal explanation for this? Anyone? Anyone in the room? Okay, let's call it force protection. It was just so outrageous what happened after the Operation Protective Edge. A lot of the book is just given over to documenting it, uh, and I'm going to end on that. I began the book. I, I was on the panel with Matt Gilbert, who's the Norwegian anesthesiologist who was in Al-Shifa Hospital during Operation Cast Lead and also during Operation Protective Edge. He's an absolutely wonderful guy, smart guy, and just a genuinely good human being, as the Brits say, a good egg. He was interviewing me, and he said that he began by saying, well, you begin the book with a quote by Gandhi about the massacre of, an in, uh, the massacre of a people is a terrible thing, and it ought to be remembered. And yes, I do believe that. Uh, you can't bring back the dead, but you, have a, you still have a, a moral responsibility, a professional responsibility to remember what happened to them. And that has always been, uh, for me, probably for personal family reasons, it's always been important that you remember what happened. Uh, when I was a young, youthful Maoist, I went to see um, the Sergei Eisenstein film. I can't remember now whether it was Battlefield Potemkin or The Mother, but one of the films, and maybe you'll remember somebody in the audience, it ends with a, strewn, a field strewn with corpses that Tsar's armies had come in and just mow down thousands of striking workers. And they were just. And then Eisenstein pans the field with the camera, and you see all these dead bodies. And then the last words on the screen were proletarians, exclamation mark, mark remember, exclamation mark. And that stuck with me. Yes, remember. Uh, they deserve to be remembered. Gandhi says the massacre of innocent people, people is a terrible thing and it ought to be remembered. And uh, the end of the book, it's really not the end because it goes on and on, but uh, towards the end of the book, I quote Confucius as saying, the beginning of all wisdom begins with giving things their proper names. And that sounds sometimes like a kind of, you know, the sort of thing you'd read in a fortune cookie. But actually, after I read the book, uh, and the, the manuscript was already complete, I added that. Jimmy Sternweiner, who's there in the back, he was one of my readers, and uh, he probably doesn't even know it's in the book because this is a version you hadn't yet seen. <laughs> At the very, very last minute, I wanted to put in that line because I realized that's really what the whole book is about. The whole book is about trying to properly name what actually happened. Mm -hmm. These operations, they're not wars. The relevant body of law is not the laws of war. And the moment you invoke the language of war or you invoke the laws of war as the relevant body 
of law, in order to examine it, you're already down the road of propaganda. You've been sucked in. You're internalizing the Israeli worldview, even as you think you're being critical. The beginning of all wisdom is to name things properly. And what's been going on in Gaza has been a protracted crime against humanity in the form of that illegal, immoral siege of Gaza. It's punctuated by these periodic massacres of Gaza. And even yesterday, when I spoke at the Cambridge Union, I thought, okay, there's going to be trouble, but I'm going to say it, that Israel now is poisoning one million Palestinian children. That's called a blood libel. You're saying they're poisoning the children. So, of course, I was a little bit hesitant. Am I going to say it? Because I'm on the side of the debate with the pro-Israel people, because I was for two states. So, I was on the same side as the head of the Cambridge Friends of Israel, which was a (laughs) peculiar juxtaposition. And I thought, you know, at some point, we're going to end up throttling each other in front of everyone. And then I I, I wanted to be 100% sure. So I went back to my own book to check, because Sarah Roy, as most of you know, the world's leading authority on the economy of Gaza. And on the personal note, she is Jewish, and both her parents were in Auschwitz, and she's also just a terrific person. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure about the language, because I'm going to come down on their attack. And she says, she wrote, every day the children of Gaza are being poisoned by the water. The water is unfit for human consumption. Every day you drink a glass of water, you're poisoning yourself. That's the proper naming of things. Mm. A million children are being poisoned. And as the United Nations Relief and Works Agency said, Gaza has one unique quality in the world. They said, every other disaster in the world, let's say it's a drought, people flee. They go elsewhere. Let's say it's a human-made disaster, war, Syria. Millions of people flee. Gaza has one unique quality. It's the only place in the world where people are faced with a human disaster, as the United Nations reports keep saying, Gaza has become unlivable. So they are confined and encaged in an unlivable situation. They can't flee. They can't go anywhere. And they're being, they meaning one half of the population is children. One million of the two million Gazans are children. They're being poisoned every day. I think that's, uh, Confucius had a point there. Mm-hmm. The beginning of all wisdom is to name things properly. And that's where I'll end it.